because of the nature of this holiday weekend, July 4th. And as Debbie has already mentioned and will mention later, we have this big celebration outside, fiscal year. It's also a holiday weekend. Because this weekend is such a big deal, um, I thought I'd take the chance to tap into the holiday and um, share a a story, because this is a significant holiday for us as Americans. This is our national independence, right? And we appreciate the, uh, the people who have fought to give us our national independence and freedom. And so we're going to take some time to share two things. First of all, one of my favorite Bible uh, passages. And I say that loosely because I have a lot of favorite Bible passages, but this is today's favorite Bible passage. I'm going to share that with you. And then I'm going to share with you a story from history, from our United States history, because of the holiday. I thought it was a good time to bring the story out. And I love to tell stories. So if you don't know this about me, there was a time in my life when I was younger when I taught high school history in a private school. And my favorite history course to teach was U.S. history. I love U.S. history. And so because of that, I'm going to um, share a story today from U.S. history that I love. And if you hate history, maybe you can learn to love it. And if you love it already, you might know the story, but I want to share it with you. I shared it a couple of years ago, by the way, around the same time, but it was during COVID. And everything was chaos, and we had been shut down and locked down for a couple months, and it was just a really weird time. I wanted to bring the story back with this passage and talk to you about it a little bit today as we discuss the topic of uncivil liberties, uncivil liberties. And so I hope that you'll uh, get something from it. But let me begin with our passage of Scripture. We're going to read some verses now, discuss them. We're going to then come back to them and read them again at the end. We're going to look at them twice. And so let me start with them here. And it's found from Paul's letter to the church to churches in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 5, I love these verses. Here's what Paul says, verse 13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Now, when when Paul is speaking about freedom, he's not speaking about, um, you know, he's not speaking about political freedom or national freedom. They didn't have that kind of freedom going on then at all. There was no There was no democracy in in the area where Paul was living at all. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to spiritual freedom. He says, you have been called to live in freedom. And the whole letter to the churches of Galatia was talking about how that they were no longer under the bondage of the law. The law that was given to them as a nation. Of course, he's written to a lot of Gentiles as well. And and he's saying, you know, know, we have these, uh, these laws that were given that all they did was produce death and remind us that we come short of the law, and they brought condemnation by our failure to keep the law. But Jesus died to pay the price and shed his blood and redeem us from the curse of the law. And and we're not under the law, we're under grace, and that's a wonderful thing. And Paul's reminding them of that spiritual freedom that they have in the whole letters about that topic. And he says here, you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. And then he adds this, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. So in other words, he says, listen, don't use your freedom to say, well, hey, I'm not under the law. I've been set free. I'm free. So now I can kill somebody if I want to. I can cheat on someone. I can cheat with someone if I want to because I'm not under the law. I'm free. You're right? I I could be uh, be self-serving. 
I can get, get myself ahead. I could be selfish in, in my own aspirations and goals. I could be unkind to somebody. I can be dominant. I could be arrogant. I can be rude. I could be unkind, ungracious, unforgiving, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. I'm free. I'm not under the law. And Paul says, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. We're called to something better. He says next, instead, instead use your freedom to serve one another in love. And what he's doing is he's pointing to what Jesus modeled when Jesus walked this earth. He says, look, this is what it means to be a Christian. Use the freedom you have. And we're like, freedom isn't there to serve. I was free, to, free from bondage, so I don't have to serve anymore. I can serve myself now. And Paul says, but we were given our freedom because someone, God, served us. And when we're free from the bondage of our sin and the wrong, we are free to take that liberty to do the same thing and follow him and use our ability to serve others to bring them freedom and to bring them better. So use your freedom to serve one another in love. And then he adds this in verse number 14. He says, for the whole law, the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a big deal. Because if the, to the astute Bible person, especially in that day, they may have said, um, excuse me, Paul, you got this wrong. The great commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So you missed it. You missed the first part, the most important part. To which, if Paul was, was told that, I, he would say this. That, that the great commandment was a summary of the Old Testament, of the ancient Hebrew scriptures that the Hebrew people had in coming and that was established under Moses and, and the law. That whole law and the prophets that followed, everything they taught was summarized under the, what he called the great commandment. All their laws, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul didn't say one was more important. He said they were equal. They were like each other. And it's important because we sometimes think we can love God without loving our neighbor as ourselves, but the truth is you can't. And that's why Paul here, was, he was speaking from Jesus' new marching orders. Remember Jesus, before he went to the cross, sat in the upper room and said to his followers, hey guys, um, I'm giving you a brand new commandment. If he wasn't God himself, everyone should have left the room for heresy. You don't give a new commandment. They already had the commandments. But here he was saying, I have the authority to do so. I'm gonna validate that on a cross in an empty tomb in a couple days here. But here's a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. That's the New Testament ethic. That's, what, that's the ethos that everything in the New Testament was built off of. All the scriptures and writings were built off the ethos of loving one another as Christ loved us. And all those one another's, Paul taught them, the church taught them. They, they, they covered all the old commands also thoroughly. So when Paul says that the entire law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't messing around. Because the truth is, is that's the tangible way that we do love the Lord our God. So easy to say, oh, I love God, and you can't judge that. No matter how horrible, I love God, you can't know my heart, you don't judge that. But it's easy to say that. It's a lot harder and it's a lot more real to actually love people who are difficult. And that's how we love the Lord our God. That's the action. John said that himself in his epistle, but I won't go there for sake of time. So Paul said, this is the whole idea. And then he makes a warning in verse 15. He says, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Watch out. 
beware of destroying one another. That's what happens. We're going to come back to that. I want to take some t- too much time, but I'll, I'll, have, I'll have fun telling you a story this holiday weekend that reminds me of the holiday, and then we're going to come back to those verses and make some application. So we rewind a couple hundred, 250 years ago, roughly, and our, the colonists are, of the American colonists who were under the British Empire were wanting their independence from Britain. The British Empire was very colonial. They had empire all over the world, and many nations would eventually find their freedom and independence from Britain. But at this time, the American colonists on the eastern seaboard wanted their independence as a nation from Britain. And it was tense. The more they wanted it, the more the British forces got mad, and the more the tension riled up, and the rhetoric was hot, and it was politically charged, and it was violently getting charged. Things were happening, and so the, the colonists here who wanted their independence from England formed a, what they called the Continental Congress in 1775. And in 1775, they got together to form a bunch of people who would try to petition England for no longer having taxation without representation amongst a whole lot of other litany of complaints. And in this process, this Continental Congress said if we can't get England to behave, we're just going to form our own independence and we're going to go to war and lay our lives down for our independence. Well, in this First Continental Congress way back in the day, a bunch of people served. Two of them were named John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. These men helped serve their country early on. In fact, I want to just give you a little background on John Adams that will take unnecessary time, but I just like to talk about it because it gives you an insight into the man. During these days, there was a a protest, a not-so-peaceful protest going on in Boston against British government. And the the mob was out there. They were yelling. They were angry. And British soldiers were kind of standing between the angry mob and and the, the place that they were kind of going after and trying to keep things calm. And the people were turning against the soldiers. And as protests can sometimes ramp up, this was ramping up. And at some point, people were throwing objects and things, and it got so inflammatory that when something was thrown and hit and a sound was made, the soldiers, in their fear of being overrun and in their moment of tension, discharged their weapons at, at, at a moment and shot and killed a bunch of people in the crowd, called it the Boston Massacre. Instantly, they were arrested. Everyone in the colonies who already wanted their independence and already despised the British presence, they wanted them all hung. And John Adams was one of the what do you call patriots who'd wanted freedom from, from Britain? He wanted this independence. He was against the British forces being there. But John Adams was a lawyer, and he stepped up and legally defended the soldiers who fired the shots against his countrymen because he believed that they deserved. He believed that they, they shouldn't just be out and hung. He thought that there was extenuating circumstances that made it difficult, that it wasn't their fault, that they weren't just cold-blooded killers. And so he defended them in court And he got almost all of them exonerated completely. He was just an ethical man despite his politics, which is rare to find in the world today. And Adams was, soon afterwards, they realized that Britain was not going to settle down, and they wanted to write a Declaration of Independence to declare that they were independent from England, knowing that it would lead to war, and they asked that John Adams would write that John Adams would write this Declaration of Independence. What an honor to be asked to do that. I mean, yes, it's a dangerous honor because if you, if you write it 
and you lose, you and everyone who signed that thing are going to get hung as traitors. But if you sign it and you win, if you wrote it and you win, well, you're part of history, brother, you know? So he was honored to be asked to write this Declaration of Independence. But you know what John did? He said, I don't think I'm the best face for this moment. He turned to his friend Thomas Jefferson and said, Tom, you're, you're more of a, a face for our nation and you're well eloquent and you're inspiring. I think it'll come across better and more inspiring from you than me. And John Adams humbly handed the honor over to Thomas Jefferson to do the authoring of that document. They both signed it, but Jefferson had the chance to write it thanks to Adams. Well, the war was fought. It was harrowing. General George Washington was, of course, the, the leader of the Continental Army and the hero of, of that uh, leader of the war. But we came, the came, nation came through and won their independence. And um, during, uh, it, it was the Battle of Yorktown in 1781 that sealed the deal when General Cornwallis re, re, uh, re, surrendered. 1783, Treaty of Paris, it was a done deal. And at the first, our nation was now forming its own government. And you all think about the United States of America, something you might not know, there was no United States of America right away. They were afraid. There was now 13 colonies who were free to govern themselves as 13 states, but they did not want to centralize their government. They were afraid of a centralized government. So they decided to form a confederation of 13 states with limited federal power, limited central government, because they didn't want, they wanted to have their own autonomy as states. So for about a decade, our nation operated as a confederation at the very beginning. And the states all had their own currencies, and it was very complicated. You'd cross lines, and money was always accepted, and laws were different, and overseas we had no real muscle, and, and we had trouble with piracy, we had trouble with other nations respecting the individual states. And they realized at some point we've got to come together with a more centralized government and give more federal power to make us legitimate. But they didn't want to because they were worried about losing their state's autonomy. So this is all the tension going on. And during this time, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both served for a season as ambassadors to France. And these men served together. In fact, during this time, Thomas Jefferson's wife died. And he was grieving very deeply. And John Adams and John's wife, Abigail Adams, John and Abigail comforted and befriended Thomas during his widowhood when his wife passed away. They were really good friends to him. Well, after a number of years, the Confederation wasn't working out. Others were brought in like James Madison to help write a new constitution that would give more of a federal, centralized government power to the states, over the states, but also at the end adding a Bill of Rights to protect individual and state freedoms. So all of this was being put together, and when they got it together, they asked their first person to be president, and they voted overwhelmingly for General George Washington to become the first president of these new United States. Washington was offered the, the throne before. They, he could have been king. He could have been emperor. But he turned it down, talked the military out of leading, and said we need to give democracy to the people. And now he's the first president. And guess what Washington did as a president? He picked some of his friends and the people who served in that, those areas to lead important roles. For example, John Adams became the first vice president serving under Washington. Thomas Jefferson became the first secretary of state serving overseas. Other people like 
Alexander Hamilton became the Secretary of the Treasury. And after four years of serving, when the term was up, Washington was going to step down and walk away because, again, he didn't want so much power. But actually, Thomas Jefferson talked Washington into running for a second term, and he did. But what happened in those years was this new nation began to have new issues because they no longer had to worry about Britain and what brought them together. They were now free to fight about other things, fight about things like what's the best way to run our country now. And they began to have different ideas and a couple different viewpoints began to emerge. One was the Federalist Viewpoint. I should call it the first party, the Federalist Party, which believed, and then there's the Democratic Republican. The Democratic Republican Party was one that believed in less federal or centralized power and more states' rights and local government. And the Federalist Party said, no, we tried the Confederation. That didn't work. We got to have a strong national presence. We need more of this, not less. And these dividing issues caused splintering amongst these old friends who once fought together for their independence. And at this time, when the, when the fighting's going on internally, Thomas Jefferson, who talked Washington into running again, he resigns as Washington's Secretary of State and leaves the post. And when Washington finished his second term, he made a decision that has echoed through history. George Washington finished his term and said, I will not run for a third term. We don't need anyone in this position of power that long. And he started a precedent that a president would only run for two terms and be done. And every president after him who was popular and won two terms, thought there was no rule. There was no rule in the, in the law that you had to do that. But Washington set a precedent that every single president after him chose to honor as he set the precedent first, that they would stop after two terms and be done. Until one president finally said, I'm going to keep running. Anyone want to tell me who that was? Yes, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he actually ran for a third one, ran for a fourth term in one, and died in office in his fourth term. And it was after Roosevelt did that, that the presidencies following him, they finally passed into federal law, okay, we're going to take Washington's precedent and make it law from now on, two terms only. That's, that was the change that was made after that. Although what's interesting about that is that, um, and I, I hope no one would ever challenge that again, we'll see, but um, it's law now. But anyhow, Washington stepped down for two terms, and um, decided, so John Adams decides to run as the Federalist Party nominee. And his old friend, Thomas Jefferson, decided to run as the Democratic-Republican nominee. And it was ugly. I know everyone thinks that ugly politics started this last year or, or 10. It was ugly. It was ugly. In fact, by the time it was over, John Adams won the presidency barely. And this is crazy, and maybe this doesn't interest you, but it's fascinating to me. The laws were new. No one had precedent for what to do. So guess how the laws worked? The laws worked back then because they didn't have a better plan yet. They hadn't thought it through. That the person with the second most votes would become the vice president. So in this hard race, John Adams barely won, became the president, and Thomas Jefferson, his opponent, became the vice president. Awkward. Okay? And it was not a pretty four years. Jefferson became very critical of his former friend who gave him the chance to write the Declaration of Independence, who stood by him when his wife died. But Jefferson is angry politically. Jefferson tore down his president as vice president vocally and consistently. 
And Adams began to quit trusting Jefferson's voice. Adams began to talk to his wife, Abigail, who was brilliant, by the way, brilliant woman, and his other friends, and and listened to them more than anybody else. And he had some bad advice given to him because there was so much national people writing articles that were against the government. So John Adams actually passed what was called the Alien and Sedition Acts. He was encouraged to do so. It was a horrible decision. Basically what this meant was if you were a foreigner on our turf and you criticized the government, we'd have you deported and kicked out of the country never to come back. And if you're a citizen of our country and you criticize the government, we can put you in prison, bless God. Obviously not a very popular move amongst the constituents, right? And of course Thomas Jefferson became more critical and this became a big, this buried Adams. In fact, Tom Jefferson and James Madison introduced the, the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions. What were those? Those were resolutions that talked about nullification and secession. Basically that if a state, they said, if a state decides that it does not want to follow a federal law for the country, that state could nullify it and it doesn't count there. Which led to the next step, if, we don't, if they try to force us, we can secede from the union. And secession was a big deal for a long time. It almost happened several times way before the Civil War ever took place. And it was hot and it was ugly. And the next, and Adams finished his four-year term and ran again. And guess who he ran against him in the next term? It was Adams and Jefferson once again. Old friends, bitter rivals. Jefferson runs hard. It was a critical, nasty campaign, especially against Adams. And the populace was behind Jefferson, and he blew him out of the water. Jefferson crushed him in the election. Humiliated him, really. In fact, it was, you know how it goes after the election, there's a, a couple months later, there's an inauguration day. And George Washington made it his custom when he finished his term to stay in town for the inauguration of the next president. But John Adams couldn't bring himself to do it. Early that morning of the inauguration, he got up and left town quietly and early and didn't even stay for the inauguration, which is very seldom happened. Happened a couple years ago again. Very seldom has happened in history. But he left. And those two guys, Jefferson and these very good friends at one time, did not speak to each other for the next 12 years, not one word. And the country got wacky at that point. Uh, Jefferson's next vice president was Aaron Burr, and he was a problem, and he ends up replacing him. At some point, Aaron Burr runs for governor of New York. Alexander Hamilton, the former secretary of the treasury, opposes him in the newspapers. He challenges him to a duel, and at some point, a former vice president, Aaron Burr, shoots and kills a former secretary of the treasury in our young nation. It's insane times. So if you ever think things are crazy now, they've always been crazy, I guess. But anyhow, this is what was going on. And the party system began for the next many years. You had, I'm going to skip a, a couple things and come back, but in, in the next many years, you had the Federalist Party. You had the, uh, the they, they, um, they were in power. Go ahead and give me that graph of all, this, all the parties together, if you would, please. The Federalist Party, you had the Democratic-Republican Party. Uh, those were the first two. Eventually, the Federalist Party died. I'll tell you why in just a moment here. They died out. The Democratic Party emerged. Then the Whig Party, they all wore wigs. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't, didn't do that. And the Republican Party, it emerged in the 1850s, uh, its first successful candidate being Abraham Lincoln. Now, um, these were the parties. But Thomas Jefferson's party, the Democratic-Republican Party, Thomas Jefferson's party stayed in power for 28 straight years, folks. 
I mean, it was him for eight years. He picked his successor, Madison, picked his successor, Monroe, all the way down 28 years of that party and his influence in who led the party for the next 28 years. And what's interesting in this ugly time, in this time of these two guys not talking to each other, some interesting things happened. First of all, Jefferson, who was highly critical of John Adams and against his Federalist mindset, once Jefferson became the president, he began to understand how necessary that actually was. And Jefferson began to adapt, because once you're in the chair, it's a little easier to understand and not be so critical when you have to do it yourself. And after a while, he became quite federalistic himself in many policies. In fact, the Louisiana Purchase, which greatly expanded our nation's boundaries, buying the land from France, from Napoleon, that was Jefferson's move, and it was very much of a federalist move even though he opposed that when he was running against Jefferson at Adams. So he came full circle when he had to sit in the chair. Meanwhile, Adams, who was very upset about this whole Democratic-Republican Party, his own son, John Quincy Adams, would eventually run as a president under Jefferson's leadership as a Democratic-Republican. Yikes. Weird time, isn't it? Twelve years those guys didn't talk. What changed? What changed was the War of 1812 changed. While the country's infighting with each other, all of a sudden, while they're infighting with each other, all of a sudden, that foreign enemy of Great Britain was slowly rearing its head again for another war. And all of a sudden, the independence they had won was in danger again as they were at clash for the next couple of years on our soil, once again on U.S. soil, fighting against British forces for their independence. And it changed everything. The Federalist Party, the country came together once again. The Federalists jumped in and said, hey, the Democratic Republicans are in charge. We're with them. Fight Britain. And the ones who politically refused to join in because of politics, they just became irrelevant and died. And the nation gelled together. You know why? It was hard to stay divided when the British forces walked into our Washington, D.C. and set the Capitol building on fire, burned down part of the newly constructed wing, set the president's mansion on fire. James Madison was president. His wife, James Madison's wife, ran into the president's mansion, took priceless paintings off the walls and got them out of there before the British showed up because they burned the president's mansion down and looted it. Our nation's most sacred buildings of government were destroyed by fire. And the nation was so angry at the attack that they gelled together and, and remembered what it's all about. And because of that, because of the unity that that war brought them, people began to be friends again. In fact, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams began to renew their friendship. After 12 years of silence, when that war was over, one of them began to write a letter. I forget who did it first. Wrote a letter to the other one to extend an olive branch. And the other one responded in kind. And they began to write, and I mean write faithfully, consistently, day upon day, for the next 14 years these men wrote and became very, very close friends again. They connected until 14 years later, they died. A couple things about their death that is interesting to me. First thing that's interesting is they died during the presidency of John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, who was the candidate for Thomas Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republicans. They died during his administration. What's also interesting is the date upon which they died. The most important date in the United States history at that point was July 4th, 1776. The day that John Adams could have written the Declaration of Independence, but gave the honor to his friend Thomas Jefferson, 
who wrote it instead, and they both signed it on July 4th, 1776. So it brought them together early on. And then they fell apart and fought and hated and hurt. They came back together. Fifty years later to the date. Fifty years later to the date on July 4th, 1826. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the 50th birthday of their nation. Hours apart, one of them saying to the other, is my friend still alive before he passed away? It was a full circle of a relationship that lost its way when they got rid of their big enemy and had the chance to fight about lesser things, they became bitter enemies. And when they were reminded of the bigger cause, they came back together and died as friends once again. I love the story because I love history, and that's one of my favorites from that period. And I look at the world today, and I see political division in our country. I see the way so many people in our country today act towards each other. Many people today seem to have civil war aspirations flowing in their blood. And the media doesn't help. The 24-hour news cycle that... that since that works best off of anger and fear and sensationalism to stir that up to make money in advertising, that doesn't help. And the social media world where we all have a platform to say, what's on your mind? Well, it was all on my mind. I'll tell you what's on my mind. That's not helping. And it's hot and it's exacerbating the problem in culture. However, that's not the part, I don't think that's the part that is especially grieving to, to God. That's just been the way it's been as long as we've been a country, quite honestly. It's just more noticeable today in technology. I think the part that, that we could say today grieves the heart of God. What grieves the heart of God is the part where followers of Christ behave in this way. I have watched the church for the last several decades turn into a movement like the moral majority and religious right and whatever else may go out there to push a to, to decide to marry the, the mission of Jesus Christ to a political agenda. And the fruit was bad early on, but it's been really bad the last many years now. The anger, the vitriol, the blurring of the lines between what is the gospel and what is our political stance has been hard to see from church to church. We have churches on both sides of the, the political divide who have married their faith identity too closely to their political identity. We've forgotten as Christians what truly matters. We've lost sight of our real enemy and our real mission. And we have exchanged the greater cause for a lesser calling. Like the men in this story I just told who, who lost sight of their greater cause in finding independence. And once they had their freedom, they could fight with each other over all the other stuff until they were reminded about the greater cause once again to bring them back on point. The church almost needs a wake-up call because we've been so off point. Getting involved in lesser, enjoying our freedoms and, and getting involved in lesser causes than the gospel. We have a mission to seek him first and his righteousness, his kingdom, to spread the good news of love to other people. And we've lost sight of that. And while we've been fighting over lesser issues within our liberties, atheism has been on the rise in the West. Agnosticism has been on the rise in the West. And, and we've lost our ground because the church has lost its identity a long time ago. And in doing so, we have alienated so many people whom we should be trying to reach. We've alienated many people. Every time you take a position 
that's political married with your faith, that's fine. Forget your faith from an enemy because political position, you alienate half of the audience that you could possibly reach because everyone's divided about down the middle, give or take at any given time. And when people who are Christians and churches take their, their energy to, be, to get involved in the political fray of earthly kingdoms, we cut off half of our audience, depending on which side of the political aisle we're on, cut off half of our audience to say, don't listen to anything else I have to say because I just lost you over my politics and my disagreement with you and my, my harshness because we're very critical. We're very meme-driven, soundbite-driven, zinger-driven, arrogant, angry culture with people we don't even know that well but we're just against. And so we've lost half of our audience when we go into that lane. And the other half of our audience that we still have, quite honestly, we've ruined them. Because people start to think, oh, you know what it is? You know, I know what it is. Being a Christian is all about being political. And it's, it's, it's appealing. A lot of us, we like to fight. We like to fight. It's a lot more appealing to draw to a cause, to be against something and for somebody else. It's kind of boring to this Jesus thing. Anyhow, lay down your life, serve, forgive, grace, yawn. So it's easy for the church to get caught up into these radical ideas one way or the other. And so we cut off half of our audience and the other half becomes misdirected about what Christianity is all about. And in doing so, we lose our way. I want to say this to you. We should be led by the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of this age. One of the things I learned a long time ago when I was a very young pastor, I've been doing this for a few years, by the way. I've been pastoring now for quarter of a century, and been in church work a lot longer than that. Not a novice at this anymore. And I learned something a long time ago in the ministry. Someone said to me as a young man, they said, one of a pastor's jobs is to understand the spirit of the age, the sin of the, of the culture, and have his finger on the pulse, especially the church. No one likes to have their finger on the, the, the sins of the church and what's really going on because it's like, leave that alone. It's just us versus them. So let me kind of just say this. For a number of years, it's been clear the church has lost its main messaging and has become far too political and ugly and nasty over earthly kingdoms that we've lost our greater cause. Now, I've tried to speak up about it from time to time, and you've heard me, and I will not stop beating the drum as long as I have a voice because we've got to get past that. Because when we lose focus on what we're supposed to be all about, what happens is this. We become so focused on winning that we lose our way. We become so focused on winning, got to win at all costs, got to tear down, got to get ahead, got to pull the other people down and put us up. We get so focused on winning that we lose our way. And we've lost our way. And we've mistreated people horribly. We've driven them from the gospel of Jesus Christ continuously in a desire to win things that just won't matter because it's just a couple years until the next big contest. By the way, I say this often, so I'll say it again because I just want to push the button. Do you know what the most important election in the, in the, history, in the history of our nation is going to be? The next one. He was like, the most important election in the world right now. And I'm always like, is it the last time? Yeah, but that, that was, they were wrong. It's this next one. And, and I've been saying this for eight or ten years now, and every time people will argue back sometimes, but that one's the most important one until it's not anymore. We get so focused on winning. As a church, we forget what we're really here for. We lose our way. When it comes to how you interact with people in person or online, can I say that what we always ought to be governing ourselves by is a mentality that looks at people and says, hey, you know what? You are more important than my view. I have a view. Nothing wrong with having a view. By the way, thank God for our democracy. Vote. Know what you believe. 
Know the issues. But when it comes to how you do all those things, I love that. I do. I got beliefs. And I, got, I mean, hey, we should all be a part of that. But while you do, never forget that when you deal with people who might see things differently than you do, to not forget as you approach somebody in person or online that you are more important than my view. And that's the Christian ethic that we need to get back to once again. I want to read our verses before I wrap this up. Back to Galatians chapter 5, because I love these verses, and I want to uh, just land a couple of them close to home. Galatians 5.13, Paul said, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Again, he's referring to spiritual freedom. That's the idea. That's the context. They didn't have democracy. I can say this today. If you happen to live in the United States of America, and you're a Jesus follower, and a Christian, and a believer born again, you got a lot of freedom, spiritually and nationally. You got a double, got a double wad of it there. You've been called to live in freedom, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of the world don't enjoy those freedoms today. Spiritually, thank the Lord. We're celebrating that, that at church today. Nationally, praise the Lord. We're celebrating that tomorrow for our holiday. We've been called to live in freedom, brothers and sisters. But, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. One of the things that I cringe about all the time, and I see it all the time, is people walking around saying, it's my freedom to say that. It's my freedom to behave that way. It's my liberty. It's my rights. It's my rights. I have a right to do this. I have a right to intimidate you. I have a right to do this. I have a right to say that. I have free speech. And all of our rights, I have a right to say what I want to say, behave how I want to behave, make you uncomfortable as much as I want to make you uncomfortable. Because that's my right. It's my freedom. Paul's like, guys, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. It makes me cringe. I have a story I was going to tell you, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, because I'm over, I'm going to not tell you today. Just watching a Christian just the other day blatantly pass along some fake information. And they knew it. They admitted afterwards they knew it was. They didn't care. It's my freedom to say what I want to say. i got to help the team win. I was like, ugh. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's what Jesus did for us. You say, but Arlen, serve in love. People who aren't in the same agreement with me about what's best. People who I think are trying to destroy my viewpoints and my liberties. Yes. Why would I do that? Because Jesus did that. He left heaven to the great divide that our sin caused. He walked across the aisle. To walk into the rule of people who didn't who, who turned from him and served us, and they crucified him in the doing so, literally. And he turned around and said, I did it to bring you back and serve you in love. And then he says in verse 14: For the whole law can be summed up in this one command: love your neighbor as yourself. That means your believing neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor, your behaving neighbor, your unbehaving neighbor. Those who, who, who see the world or vote the way you do and those who don't and everything else in between. Those who have the same lifestyle that you and those who don't. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Bible New Testament command. This is the spirit of the age. And I feel like I put my finger on it because the church needs to be challenged. We all do. I do. We all do. Again. But he warns us this. But if you are always biting And devouring one another, watch out, beware. Beware of destroying one another. Here's the great paradox. The great paradox is this. That when the reason we bite and devour other people is so we can win. The reason we bite and devour is so we can get ahead. 
We bite and devour so that our team can come out on top, so that they don't beat us, so that they don't destroy us and take away what makes us whatever we feel is important. So we do that so that we won't be destroyed. But the paradox is that when we bite and devour each other, we ultimately are destroyed. And I think Christianity has suffered tremendously from church people who spent more time trying to bite and devour their way into earthly winds and have lost the greater cause that we're called to, which is to serve one another in love. And we found destruction in our attempt to avoid destruction. So what are we going to do? I know, I know that we get concerned about our rights more than other people's rights, my rights more than others' rights, my freedom more than your freedom, I know. Let's not wait till the true enemy becomes too large of a threat before we get back on the mission. Closing statements. Freedom, freedom allows us to fight against those we once fought beside. That was Jefferson and Adams and a whole lot of people who once fought side by side in a greater cause, but then they got freedom and now they could fight against each other. Freedom, freedom. We love our freedoms, don't we? Freedom allows us to fight against those we once fought beside. But listen, love, Love requires us to fight for even those who fight against us. And that's not a popular message. But neither was the cross that we're called to take up and follow Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. He served those who hated him. He served the world who needed him. He served the world who crucified him. If we can't see the heart of Jesus in our actions anymore because of our vitriol for other kingdoms and other causes, we've lost our way. Love requires us. Freedom allows us, but love requires us to do something better. And I want that to be our culture here. I've been in church world all my life. I not only have a pastor a long time, I've been a pastor's son before that. And I've got a lot of pastor friends. I've been involved in a lot of church leadership structures. And all my life, I mean, this is my world. I get this world very well. And I'm going to tell you something I know. We've lost our cause over lesser issues. Being loud and proud and arrogant about the wrong things. So some time ago, we made our vision statement at Lighthouse Church to reflect where we're trying to go. And if you don't know our vision statement, you ought to know it. It's where we're going. And if you want to be a part of the journey, this is kind of what we're trying to do here. Our vision statement says, for far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. We are for Cedar Lake. We are for our community because God is for our community. We are for people because God is for people. We love, and we want to be known for what we're for. We want to be known for it. We want to be centered on it. We want to be serving from that place. We want that to be our passion, our mission, our cause, what runs through our veins and beats in our heart, what drives us, what gets our passions stirred, is serving. Or as Paul said it this way, use your freedom to serve one another. In love. That's the way forward for those who call ourselves not just church attenders or quote unquote Christians, but genuine Christians or Christ like people or Jesus followers. That's what it looks like. And by the grace of God, I want our church to be a church that models after our Savior and how we operate in the culture within which we live. May it be so.